This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 237. Today we speak with James Dolzell about the doctrine of divine impassibility. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. I am here at Westminster Theological Seminary in our studio, uh, speaking with a number of friends of mine. Let me introduce to you our panel. We have, uh, to my right, Jeff Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Welcome, Jeff. It's good to have you here. Oh, it's good to be here. And we're also very excited to welcome back a friend of ours. It's been about a year. I'm, I'm appalled to see it had been that long, but we're very excited uh, to welcome back to the program Dr. James Dolzell, who is uh, ordained. Uh, what's what's your you're a Reformed Baptist, a confessing, but what's what's your organiz- or bo- governing body? Or, or well, uh, a, a a Baptist ordains at the local church I know, level. Local, so how do you say you're an? Or, would you just say you're an ordained Reformed Baptist? Right, <laughs> because now and a Reformed Baptist will understand. Uh, you're con- I know you're congregationalist. Means. Right. But, but you gather together yeah. synods. Some do and some don't. Some do. <laughs> well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, James is a Ph.D. Uh, graduate from Westminster Theological Seminary uh, last year. Uh, he's also an author, uh, and he has written a wonderful book titled God Without Parts, Divine Simplicity, and the Metaphysics of God's Absoluteness, which is from Pip- Pickwick Publications, which is an imprint of uh, Whip and Stock. Many of you would be familiar with Whip and Stock. And so uh, James is a a noted author uh, and has received uh, recommendations and uh, high praise, actually, from some important people in the field. So we're very excited to have James back on the program today to talk about uh, the doctrine of God and metaphysics. Uh, But today we're not going to be speaking about simplicity. We're going to be speaking about impassibility. Um, But before we get to that, I suppose we should stop and pause for any news or news or updates uh from around the world jeff there anything to mention uh let's see i'm not sure that I, that i was that i'm aware of any there, there are things that of course that are going to be coming out that we're waiting for mm-hmm. there's a book uh, i think i've already mentioned on jonathan edwards and justification mm-hmm. um i that's all the only one that I, that I can think of off the top of my head. Right. It's a slower um, the summer is slower. time of year. I just received something uh, from PNR a little while back, just a few weeks ago, called Lifted, if I'm correct. It, it was published in the UK a few years ago, 2010, but the PNR just came out with a new edition. I, I don't have it in front of me, so I, I beg your forgiveness if I get something wrong. Uh, but it's a book about the significance of the resurrection, a more of a practical type book, but it's still somewhat rich theologically. Mm. Um, and uh, and uh, Alberry, Sam Alberry, I think is the author, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. But I'll have more information on that. I, I've been enjoying it so far, so if uh, I'm able to finish the book, I hope to possibly we could do a Reform Media review on it. And have we mentioned the uh, Letters from the Front? We probably... The book? We may not have, but Barry Waugh has published uh, or edited transcribed and edited all sorts of a collection of Machen's letters 
right? Yeah. Have you been able to read? No, I, read I, a few I haven't them. gotten my copy yet, but it's uh, I, it's from his time serving as a YMCA secretary right. on the front uh, over in, in Europe during World War One. Mm-hmm. So it'd be very interesting to see uh, what's in there. Yeah, and the letters are always fascinating. I've always enjoyed reading. I mean, some, some of those made and, their way into into Stonehouse's biography of Machen. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but this, I'm sure, it's a more substantial collection. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, uh, keep your eyes open for the website and uh, also uh, WTSbooks.com for information about future books and publications, those sorts of things. There's always new things coming out, even though in the summertime it gets rather slow. Uh, but there are some some new books we're going to talk about today, books that have come out maybe in the last year that many people are not aware of, uh, books that are important, but... Uh, not often spoken about, and these are books related to our subject today, which is the doctrine of divine impassibility. I'll pass things to you, James, initially, just to speak about, maybe you could uh, describe uh, for our listeners the Westminster Confessions statement uh, that God is without parts, passions, etc., and and describe these doctrines in very broad categories so we can understand where we're going to go today when we say that God is without passions. Right. So the language of God without passions uh, is found in confession in Westminster Confession two one Savoy Declaration Second London Confession mm-hmm. same language uh, also originating in the thirty nine Articles so its original incarnation is uh, in sixteenth century Anglican garb uh, but it's simply uh, found in that brief statement uh, in Confession two one uh, that God is without body parts or passions. Um, I would I would venture to say that uh, the notion that God is without a body uh, is relatively uncontroversial among uh, Orthodox Christians, whether they whether they are uh, you know Presbyterian, Baptist, Anglican, Lutheran. I mean, you go down the line. Classically, these positions, and even a classical Roman Catholic position, would very clearly, and modern Roman Catholics very very clearly affirm that God has no body. Um, the statement that God is without parts, which was, uh, which I won't get into, but was yeah. my, was my own area of research. I should mention we did an episode on this a year ago. Right. If, if people would like more detail, uh, they can, they can see the archives. I'll also put a link to that in the show notes, uh, okay. that, that we do treat this in depth, um, was just before you actually signed a book contract, I believe. So yeah, I didn't. I didn't have anything. You had your dissertation. The dissertation yeah. was finished, but no, there was no book online at that point. Uh, and then a few weeks later, the ball got rolling. So well, yeah. So so check the website for that, and I think that would be a good prelude to today. So we can presume a knowledge, at least a working knowledge of yeah, what we were talking if, about. If, then. if you really want to dig into some of the more basic metaphysical ontological commitments of the reformed tradition but i would say the classical western tradition right uh then then you know you would want to put some serious thought into what is meant by god without parts in mm-hmm. short it it's often mistaken to be simply a kind of exegetical statement about god without a body god's without a body including without parts as if that's so, sort of just a, a side note explaining what it means to be without a body he's immaterial um, that he's immaterial yeah. he's so, he's immaterial he doesn't even have he doesn't have a body he doesn't have body parts that's most certainly not uh <laughs> what was in view of course that's included in the statement god is without parts but most importantly, what the reform meant in saying that was to 
was to attach themselves to the classical doctrine of divine simplicity, which which says that God is in no way composed of parts, whether those parts are substance and accidents, uh, whether they are form and matter, um, whether they are more conceptual parts like genus and species, and maybe most importantly of all, that he's not composed of, uh, of being and essence. And what I mean is active existence and essence. God is not composed of, of essay, active, active being, mm-hmm. and essence. So most importantly, God is identical with the actuality uh, by which he is. This is what this is what we mean when we say that God is being itself, or I think a better way to put it's it. not becoming. God is not becoming, <laughs> like but I think the most important yeah. way to put it positively is that God is pure act. That is what that is what's informing and animating this whole notion that God is without parts, yeah. that he's not that he's not composed of act and potency, so that so that there isn't some passive potency that he actualizes. Then mm-hmm. lastly, uh is the statement that God is without passions. Now interestingly, uh as I as I look at those three, obviously without parts is the most uncontroversial, or I'm sorry, without, without body, body is the most uncontroversial. Um, without without a question, though, the statement that God is without passions is the most controversial of the three. In fact, it's here that you find uh, most people, even in a Reformed world, who take any exceptions on the doctrine of God, they tend to take an exception on this particular statement that God is without passions, or if they want to continue saying God's without passions, they want to they want to severely uh, qualify uh, what that means. So much so that I think often the end result is that you, you've lost the intent and what was really uh, being taught in the doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, in effect, the statement that God is without pa- passions uh, follows naturally from God without parts, because if God doesn't have parts, uh, there's nothing there's nothing in God that can be reduced to actuality by some action outside himself or even some action inside himself. God doesn't, God doesn't cause some inactive part of himself to be active by some will in which he wills to act upon himself. Conceptually, we say that God is, the God is not both agent and patient. God doesn't, God's not like the surgeon who, uh, who might perform operation on his own arm in mm-hmm. which the, in which the, you know, the agent is also the patient. Uh, God doesn't, God doesn't act upon himself and cause himself to change in any way. Um, that's implied as a very basic conception of God without parts. Now, to say God is without passions is essentially the commitment that God that God is in no way uh, changeable uh, with respect to his affections. Um, so that while Scripture speaks of God in affectionate language, and I may even say very passionately charged language, uh, this doctrine is a negative way of saying that he doesn't actually have passions, which is in effect to say he doesn't actually undergo uh, changes in emotive state from emotive state A to emotive state B. Mm-hmm. Now, this uh, this of all is, uh, I think, the, the most uh, startling, I think, to some who first come to this doctrine or come to the confession, if anything sounds wrong about God is without body parts or passions, it's that God doesn't have passions, because mm-hmm. if Scripture seems to say anything, it's that God is uh, very passionate and lively, and you know, so we, we kind of make these connections. I'll give you a definition of uh, impassibility uh, that I think is a, is, a, is a good, broad Western definition from uh, the New Catholic Encyclopedia. 
says that impassibility is that divine attribute whereby God is said not to experience inner emotional changes of state, whether enacted freely from within or effected by his relationship to and interaction with human beings and the created order. That's the that's a, a definition, if you want a textbook definition mm-hmm. of what impassibility is and what we're saying when we say God is without passions. That's handy. Yeah. And so you're what you're alluding to or what you're what you're explaining is that there are deep biblical and theological motivations here on both on both sides yeah. uh, in the sense that of why people want to maintain impassibility and why other people want to reject it what we need to do today is is understand really what the doctrine is about and then also uh, why it needs to be maintained correct I think a good place to start is with the uh, is with the passage that the Westminster Confession lists as a proof text mm-hmm. uh, that God has no body parts or passions, and they they cite only one text. Um, and bef- and I'll read it. Before I do, though, we have to remember that the proof texts in the Confession were never meant to be uh, sort of uh, references to a perfectly formed doctrine, but rather it's 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 not simply that the text contains the dogma, but that the text gives you. Uh, gives you the principles by which you arrive at the dogmas. I think Dr. Truman once explained that the uh, the proof texts are meant to be kind of like a, a hook to say, here, here are the, you know, given the commentary tradition, this is where yes, to start. Right, Look right. at the exegesis on this. It'll yeah. lead you to a full treatment of yeah, what we're Muller, Muller laid that out, I think, in his post-Reformation okay. reform okay. dogmatics, pointing, I, that, pointing that out. I think we should then remind ourselves that no proof text is ever meant to be an uninterpreted or self-interpreting proof text. There's no such thing as an uninterpreted text of Scripture. Um, so that when we talk about a proof text, uh, it's not enough just to throw the verses out there, but the verses have to be explained within a certain framework of, mm-hmm. of thought. It's and just that, hermeneutics. And that framework itself has to be informed by Scripture. Good exegesis. Yeah. The, the verse that they quote uh, is, this, is from the statement uh, that Paul gives uh, in— in Acts fourteen fifteen, and he says, uh, "Men, why that they wanted to? They wanted to. Uh, they treated him and Barnabas as if they were as if they were divine." And he says, "Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain uh, things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them." Uh, the statement that they're referring to is this statement that we translate, uh, we are we are men of the same nature as you. The old King James has it, we are men of like passions as you. Uh, and so uh, you also find that same translation in the American Standard Version, uh, Webster's translation from the 19th century. Um, it's it was cut, the the word that they use uh, in in the Greek is homoipathes, mm-hmm. uh, like that we are of like passions or like pathos uh, with you, and the whole the whole point being that we're not we're not gods we are we are passionate creatures like you. Now mm-hmm. I think the the more generic uh, translation that we are of like nature gets the sense of it. He's saying we're not deities, okay, mm-hmm. uh, we're not of divine nature. But it's interesting that he chooses to identify the divine nature, to, to distinguish the divine nature from the human by, by sort of implying that the divine nature, if some, for someone to be divine with them for, would be for them to not share, to not share the, the passions yeah. or the pathos with, with, mm-hmm. uh, with creatures or with men. Um, the, 
the interesting thing, uh, there's a translation, Young's literal translation, that actually says that we are not like affected as you. Hmm. Uh, and, a tra- and I think that's another, that's, that gets more at the sense of even what pathos means. Uh, it means to be affected. Literally, uh, when we say that God is impassable, what, a pas- what is a passion? Uh, a passion literally is uh, uh, to undergo, uh, a passion is literally to undergo. Uh, or to be changed uh, comes from the original pati, which means to suffer or submit. Uh, and passions can be defined. This is just from a broad dictionary: capable of feeling or suffering. Um, so when we say that God is without without like passions to us, or as the confession says, without passions, what what we're saying is that God doesn't undergo change. Uh, he can't be he can't be acted upon in such a way uh, that he can that a change would result in his affections. So how would this relate um, more specifically or, or organically to the doctrine of divine simplicity? Uh, what is, why is this doctrine of impassibility implied and uh, maybe a necessary consequence of yeah. simplicity? Uh, it's, a consequ- it's a consequence of simplicity because simplicity says that God is not composed of parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, if God is not composed, if God, if there is no distinction in God between his between his actuality and his essence, and if God is in fact purely so actual, that mean, meaning he couldn't become something greater yeah. or something. That, that God that, that God lacks all passive yeah. potency. If yeah. God lacks passive potency, then he cannot possess passions. If passion means to undergo, does God does does God undergo change? That's that's the heart of the question. Mm-hmm. Um, Simplicity says God can't change uh, because it, because there is no because there are no parts in God. That is to say, there is no there is no correlation between an actualizing part and a passively and a passive piece of passive potency that is being actualized. Um, so that God doesn't cause Himself to be actual. God doesn't give to Himself further actuality. Uh, nothing is the cause of it. Nothing that is is the cause of itself. Uh, well, then what can we say? If God isn't the cause of himself, uh, because he's uncaused, then what is he? He's pure act, and as such, he's the sufficient cause of all other things, but he's not the cause of himself. If he's not the cause of himself, um, and if he can't be caused by another, then he can't, then he can't possess passions because he can't undergo, he can't change, he can't, move from, he can't move from affectionate state A to affectionate state B, in mm-hmm. which some real change transpires within him, whether that's caused by himself or whether that's caused um, by creatures. I think the other doctrine in which it's more ordinarily connected to is obviously immutability. Oh, yeah. Um, but you you mentioned that God is pure act, and that that's a that's a topic today where there are a lot of different views on that. Could you very briefly just distinguish what you mean by God is pure act or act is purest from, for instance, what contemporary Bardians might be saying? Yeah, I mean the way I would put it, I would put it in a slogan: uh, Bardianism teaches that God is merely actual rather than purely actual. And the different the distance between being merely merely actual or I might even say the difference between being very actual uh, and purely actual is infinite. In a in a Bardian conception, uh, God when they say God is pure act, what they mean is uh, what they mean is that God's very busy determining things. That he's that he's even very himself. even yeah. himself that he's very that he's very proactive about things and that he's never sitting on the sidelines so to speak but he's but he's he's always busy causing things to be and even causing himself to be so what they mean by pure actuality is um, that God is actively involved in all things 
even even in bringing to even in bringing about uh, his own his own essence and its, all of its particularities. Okay. Um, what pure actuality says uh, is not that God is busy bringing about things, but rather that God is subsistent existence itself. That the very nature of God is not to become, but is to be. Um, now, immediately, people hear this, and the response is, "Wow, that sounds very." inert, static, cold, mm-hmm. lifeless, undynamic, all the things that the God of the Bible isn't. Uh, he's very, he's very clearly, uh, he's very clearly active. Don't, aren't the Bardians, he's covenantal. Give, aren't, I mean, the, it, aren't the Bardians giving us something that we can go with here? Yeah. We can, you know, we can try to be careful and not, and not uh, fall into some of their excesses, but, but can't we use this idea that God is very actual? Again, I would go back to the slogan, the difference between a God who is either merely or very actual and a God who is purely actual is different, it is, is infinite. And the reason is, and the reason is because, Pure actuality uh, precludes all passive potency whatsoever. Whereas, whereas a God who is very actual in the Bardian sense doesn't lack doesn't lack passive potency. Rather, he's very busy constantly reducing passive potencies within himself to actuality. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so that I think we we need to be careful and we need to guard this language of pure actuality. Pure actuality is not is not to say that God is dynamically becoming in some way superior to all other dynamically becoming things. That's that would be a Bardian conception. Uh, the classical Reformed and Thomas conception would be that God is so purely actual in all His perfection that He cannot that He cannot be moved to some further actuality, not by an action that He performs upon Himself, and not by an action that is performed performed upon Him by a creature. Now, when it comes to His affections. Uh, love, joy, peace, uh, love, joy, peace, all the things that we say God is or exhibits in himself, um, even his wrath against sin, these cannot be effective states that God could be and then and then cause it, voluntarily chooses himself to be uh, in his in his act of creation. Um, so what are so what are the Im, what are the impulses behind uh, divine impassibility? Uh, all the texts that might ref, classical texts that would refer to divine immutability, Numbers 23, 1 Samuel 15, 29, Malachi 3, 6, uh, James 1, 17. Uh, these, these texts from which we build and, and contemplate a doctrine of divine immutability would also, would also stand uh, to, to support divine impassibility. Now, the statement from Acts 14 is not a proof text in the sense of it simply states God is, don't you know God is impassable? Uh, but there does seem to be the there does seem to be the assumption um, that the passability the you know the passability of humans is not to be ascribed to God. Now some might say, well, that's because God that isn't that's not because God's without passions, but because he has passions in some superior way, not like not the, the kind not like the irrational right. animal spirit passions yeah. of, of humans. I would I would say that 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 is not uh, animal passions. That is not what uh, I know. Some people that the, have passion, you know, for animals. That's not how the tradition. Would, lovers. That's not how the tradition would understand that. Um, but I think the thing you have to say in addition to that is, yeah. uh, in addition to the biblical doctrines of creation ex nihilo and divine immutability, there are also the metaphysical doctrine, doctrines in which we say God lacks passive potency and God is God is subsistent being itself. He's purely actual. Mm-hmm. Um, the question, though, I think that people have in their mind is. But doesn't creation itself introduce some change? Uh, it isn't, doesn't God move from not creator to creator? 
I mean, yeah. God ha- and since creation is a free choice of God, isn't his choice to freely create not at least indicative that God freely becomes then something that he wasn't? He, he takes on some new actuality. Don't we have to at least say that much? Uh, again, no. That, that would only be true if God were a univocal causal agent. Uh, agents within the same order of being that cause things uh, do do tend to undergo some some change relative to the thing they create. But God is not correlative to the world. God is not correlative to his creation. The act by which God creates the world is an eternal act, even though the effect, the world created, is a, temp- is a temporal effect. The actions by which God creates and providentially guides the world um, are revealed to us in time and successively unfolding as God's effects. But that doesn't mean that every time God acts both to create and then providentially bring creation to its consummation, that doesn't mean that every time God sort of undertakes uh, to begin a new action so that God himself is moving along with the world through the succession of time, each time, each time he performs a new action, a la his effects, he's actually uh, actualizing some new uh, that he's actually undertaking some new activity in himself. Rather, the act by which he creates and the act by which he providentially uh, brings all things to their consummation, even down to the minute details, uh, is a singular, eternal, immutable act that he wills in himself uh, from all eternity, and that he and that he never uh, that he never and we want to say he never existed in a state in which he didn't will that. So. The action by which he creates is his eternal divine will. The action by which he providentially guides creation is that same eternal divine will. The effects themselves transpire uh, in time. Now, but but God also has the freedom to create or not to create. Correct. I mean, yeah, God, I I would I would say I would say as soon as you say something like God has the freedom. Uh, you immediately have to qualify or show how you can't qualify uh, the notion the notion of divine freedom. God doesn't stand deliberately, deliberatively uh, in any passive sense before a range of options. Um, when we talk about possible worlds, um, it's not as if there are all the possible worlds and then God chooses A, and so he moves from could choose all the possible worlds to now has chosen world A or B or whatever. Sure. He is eternally and immutably and by and by virtue of the same act by which he exists, freely chosen the world. I would argue that the modality of that freedom, which is all the rage in theological and especially philosophical theological literature since the late '60s, is something that uh, that we can't possibly understand. That we can't possibly grasp the modality of divine freedom any more than you can grasp the modality of divine act. Uh, you can't grasp. Pure, pure actuality, you can't grasp a free act made in virtue of that pure actuality. Mm-hmm. Um, the possible world's language is almost inappropriate then. Uh, it's starting to get its pushback. Uh, Alexander Pruss uh, from Baylor, um, uh, Hugh McCann from Texas A&M, uh, both are, both are cha- and, and then more classical Thomas, um, are challenging the notion of how of how useful the notion of possible worlds is when it's coupled with the assumption that God is an ontolo- that God is a univocal uh, causal agent. Yeah, and we certainly want to. The motivation for what I'm saying is to prevent. Um, we we always want to make sure that even metaphysically we prevent pantheism, panentheism, yeah, sure, um, or any univicism among what God has created. So 
we need to understand that even though God has decreed and uh, eternally to create, that that does not in some sense make creation uh, on the same metaphysical playing field as God's existence. The, ap- the appearance of creation in time did not, did not move God into a new state of affairs. It didn't, uh, in the sense that God wasn't sitting there waiting for creation, and then it sprang up beside Him. Uh, To speak that way is to speak as if God's, if God, as if God inhabits the same ontological order with the world itself. Sure. Um, uh, What Thomas would say is, um, I'm thinking of his quote, uh, in which he says, uh, in which he says, "An acting cause as acting cause does not receive anything." it's only the it's only the acting cause not not as agent but as patient that receives change. So you might think of it this way: um, when you know when you're walking barefoot on the sand on the sand and you and you put your foot into the sand and you make a and you make a footprint, uh, the the action by which you make the footprint does not entail any change. The action itself by which you make the footprint does not entail any change in you. It only entails a change on the on the thing that you uh, on the thing that you're acting upon. The sand receives the impress of your foot. Now you could lift up your foot and look at the bottom, and you might see all, all the little indentations from the granules of sand in the bottom of your foot. And so you might you might think to yourself, well. Uh, my action as a causal agent stamping my foot into the sand caused a change in me. Look, my foot now has this impression on it. And I felt it too. So there's a change. And I I felt it. I entered a new state of, a new state of, of sensible feeling. Mm -hmm. Uh, All these, all these things uh, took place when I acted. Therefore, it must be that when a causal agent acts, some change must sort of bounce back as it were to the causal agent. That's only, that's only true for a univocal causal agent that is also a patient. So let me put it this way. Mm -hmm. The, the action, the action that caused the little granules of sand to indent themselves on the bottom of your bare foot was not the action of your stepping in the sand per se. Uh, it was the action of the sand itself upon your foot. It was the action, it was actually the sand that acted to impress form on your foot while at the same moment your foot acted to impress a form upon the sand. So that the agent that has changed in his activity is not changed as an agent per se, but For he's both changed, patients and both but, agents. But he's changed as a page as yeah. a patient. So when God, let's take it to back to what we're saying about creation. When God creates the world, um, when God creates the world, the world does not, as it were, uh, push back some change into God Himself. Otherwise, God is not pure act. He would have to be. He would have to be agent and patient. He would have to be act and potency. Unless He's composed of parts, act and potency, um, the world cannot. The appearance of the world in time cannot cause a change in God. Cannot cause Him to enter some uh, new relation or state of affairs. Um, I would say so. Fundamentally, you would have to deny impassibility. You'd have to deny. Uh, immutability, simplicity, pure actuality, if you want to deny impassibility. And tied in all, with it, all of this, of course, is time and eternity, which we... Yeah, well, they've uh, snuck yeah, in, right? Yeah, they, yeah they, of course, they're, 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 uh, they're, in the, they're in the discussion because God doesn't, 
God doesn't act in time so that so that again the world the world doesn't create a, a new state of affairs for God and God doesn't go along with the world rather he acts he acts in an eternal timeless act outside of creation itself but we we speak of God as acting in time what we mean is that the act of his will produces effects in time which are all the effects of his action and so when we when we look at the effects the effects of someone's action we say that person is acting. Look at the effect. When we say that a timeless, eternal, immutable, purely actual God acts, and we look at his effects in time, we say, look, God is acting. God is acting to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. God is acting to uh, call, you know, call Moses out of the desert. God is at when we say this, but, and, and these are all new effects, but the, but the, the plurality of new effects does not then indicate that there's a plurality of new actions through which God is, God is progressing along with the world in time. Um, um, we should also say, well, let me ask, uh, what are some recent pieces of literature, recent books, uh, that are talking about this? This was, this discussion was prompted in part by one in particular, but before we continue, uh, to discuss more opposition to the doctrine, yeah. um, why don't we allow people to understand who's, 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 actually, who's writing about who's it, writing. who's on either side yeah. and, and, uh, what book do you have in front of you there, for instance? Okay, I'll start with the one I don't have in front of me. Okay. The, be- the very best place to begin at the at a book length level is is Thomas Wayne Andy's book yeah. "Does God Suffer?" Mm-hmm. Um, Notre Dame, two thousand two, I think. Small now, caveat to the you know to the readers of that book toward the end. Oh yeah, there's a. I mean, from a reform standpoint, the caveat would be. Uh, you know, some of the Vatican II elements that you find in the last chapter and a half are not going to set well with you, but the the first six chapters of the book are, in my opinion, in terms of the literature out there on a passability, unparalleled. Um, the interesting thing was I, uh, you know, Thomas Wayne Andy is is a Roman Catholic priest, a Capuchin. He's not he's not ordinarily uh, on our recommended list of reading, but it was seven or eight years ago in a Westminster class with Carl Truman uh, that that book was recommended, and I can remember Carl Truman saying, uh, "If you want if you want an excellent refutation of uh, open theism that is in many ways more sophisticated than what's coming out from the evangelical Calvinists, you really you really should read uh, Thomas Wayne Andy's book, Does God Suffer? Hmm. Um, so that was the first I had heard of it and turned on to it. Uh, again, I, I say I think those first six chapters are invaluable reading. Uh, it's, it's tough slogging at times, but important. Uh, in addition to that, he has a slew of articles. You can find them. One of them is actually in the other book I would recommend, uh, which is a newer book, a collection of articles, uh, Divine Impassibility and the, mis- the, and, and the, the Mystery of Human, and the Mystery of Human Suffering. Um, this is edited by James Keating and Thomas Joseph White, um, both OP. OP, but not, not Orthodox, not, not Orthodox <laughs> Presbyterian, but order order of preachers, uh, I guess. Uh, I mean, the sad, I guess the sad thing about this book from a reform standpoint is the only Protestants who show up are people like Robert Jensen, uh, who yeah. who quite who quite explicitly rejects the doctrine of simplicity of simplicity, immutability, uh, impassibility, especially. The words of um, one of our colleagues, one of our friends. He's fearless. Also, Bruce McCormick uh, yeah. represents the pro- the reform view, which is the Bardian view. Uh, the best articles in the book are are Gilles Emery's fifty page article, which is a translation from the French, um, in which he details a whole range of modern opponents to the doctrine, and then gives you about twenty pages expounding uh, the doctrine and its theological function. Uh, Emery's chapter 
uh, by my lights is is the very best in the volume. Uh, but the other one is there's a there's about a 20-page chapter, again, by Thomas Wayne Andy, uh, which he explains the implications of pure actuality, I think, in a way that's broadly accessible. Now, well, Why do you think uh, the evangelical Calvinists, as you put it, are not in this vein or writing as much on impassibility that those sorts of things? Uh, why do you, in your estimation, think that they're lagging? I, I, think, there, I think there are a host of reasons. I mean, if you, if you, got, into, if you got into the many uh, reasons why evangelical Calvinists are uncomfortable with and or have just outright rejected the doctrine. It's hard to, it's hard to pin it down uh, to one in particular, but you do find a rejection of this even, even in something like uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He's, he makes it quite clear that he in no way intends to defend impassibility, um, which I think op- opens up some, opens up uh, some problems for him in other positions, even though overall I quite like the book. Uh, he's not he's not on board with this. Like I said, uh, ministers and professors in conservative reform circles uh, frequently take exception to this. I mean, what are what are some of the reasons? I mean, I could I could rattle off. I think some it's just a general dislike of metaphysical language uh, and and concepts like like pure actuality. They don't like they don't like these uh, coupled together with the fact that. There's a there's a prevalent trend not to articulate your ontological commitments. Um, there's just there's no push or demand these days, even in conservative evangelical and even reformed seminaries, uh, to articulate yourself ontologically. So that when you talk about God's substance and God's essence, uh, and God's and God's power and God's knowledge, uh, you're you're not required to give a very close ontological account of what you mean by those terms. And if you get too precise with those terms, I find that people get they begin to get uncomfortable and they think this is the this is the intrusion of of Greek thought uh, into you know, into biblical, vital Christianity, and what we really have to do these days is keep the Greeks out. I think this might be a second reason. Uh, there's, there's, this, there's this reaction that doctrines like simplicity, impassibility, even strong accounts of immutability, maybe even, uh, maybe even atemporal eternity, uh, are, all, are all the products of some bad influence from Greek Hellenized thought. This is the Hellenization of Christianity in which that biblical, that, that God of, of biblical vitality and dynamism is, is relegated uh, almost out of reach and out of connection entirely uh, with, with creatures. Uh, he's made cold, he's made passive, uh, and you know, just indifferent, I think is, is a term to describe it. And so there's this thought that that's what, that's what Hellenized, uh, that's, what, that's, what, that's what Greek philosophy will do to Christianity. Um, now that that that's a, a thesis that goes back at least to Adolf von Harnack. Yeah, von Harnack, and you also find it in Rischkel uh, in the late 19th century. That basically, so, shortly after the the post apostolic age, as soon as you get into the very early church fathers, and particularly people like Justin Martyr and Athenagoras, that they basically abandoned uh, biblical Christianity and they they simply obscured it by by just suffocating it under Greek concepts and Greek terms, and, and the God of the Bible was, was remade, refashioned into the God of Greek philosophy. Well, and, the, and there is the potential for that kind of 
Yeah, let's not the, what, the use of the word potential. But not, there we, is, there, we can talk about yeah. potential and even passive potency because yeah. we are creatures. Exactly, and so there is the there is the, the theoretical potential for uh, compromise, right? So we don't want to deny sure. that. But the question is, is there compromise, and then what is the nature of it? Now you have uh, a, a response to the. Uh, Hellenization uh, accusation. Yeah, accusation. Yeah, my, my response is usually it it usually suffices as the argument for those who make the argument simply to say, well, that's Hellenism. That's that's just making Christianity into Greek. You know, that's just rethinking Christianity along Greek lines. My response to that is, first of all, uh, you have to prove that whatever Greek sources the church fathers might have been drawing on, that the Greeks themselves were actually wrong in what they said. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think that's what that's what it's a logical fallacy, that genetic fallacy, or it it is a it is a type of genetic fallacy in which you say it came from the Greeks. The Greeks are pagans. The Christians bar look. The formal language is identical. Plato talks about divine ideas, and then oh, lo and behold, Augustine's talking about divine ideas and and eternal forms. Uh, You know that that's bad news. I I think that simply making that observation about a formal dependence upon Greek philosophical thought does not in any way prove that the Greek philosophical thought itself is somehow intrinsically inimical to biblical conviction. I'm not saying it couldn't be, and this gets to me to my second point. The accusation of Hellenism also tends to assume that there, that there is some Greek consensus, uh, that there is one Greek doctrine of God. In fact, there are many uh, competing uh, uh, factions within Greek philosophy itself. Think of Epicureans and Stoics. Uh, and you th- and you can think of others. Think of think of Greek popular religion, and then think of Greek philosophy. I mean, even even uh, even Thomas or even Justin Martyr himself is playing these off against each other. Uh, we reject we reject the myths of of Greek popular religion in favor of the more sound reasoning of of certain Greek philosophers. My point is, if it's if it's Hellenizing Christianity uh, to make formal use of certain Greek philosophical thoughts. Why is it not equally Hellenizing Christianity to do as the passibilists do uh, mm-hmm. to imbibe Greek popular religion? Why is that not a form of Hellenized Christianity? You see, because look at the gods of look at the gods of Greek religion. They're they're anything but impassable. Uh, you know, <laughs> they are quite passionate beings, aren't yeah. they? Well, if we're going to say the word. God of the Bible is passionate, there's no more passion. There's no more epitome of a passionate deity than what you have in what you have in Hellenized religion. So, why isn't arguing for God's passibility not a form of Hellenizing Christianity? Again, it goes back to the point: you have to prove that the Greek philosophy is right or wrong. You have to prove that the that the popular Greek religion is right or wrong. Uh, the question is not whether there's some formal similarity uh, the question is whether of whether those people are right the third the, and I think the third thing you have to determine to make this all the more complicated uh, is whether the Christians in formally appropriating aspects of Greek thought did not cause those concepts to undergo a, th- a thoroughly Christian conversion by baptizing those those doctrines uh, into into a set of Christian con- controlling convictions like, most importantly, creation ex nihilo. So that when, when uh, Augustine, who's read Plato and is thoroughly acquainted with Plato and especially Plotinus, uh, comes, to, comes to this doctrine of eternal ideas or eternal forms, he looks at it and there's something plausible about it to him. But as a Christian, he remakes that doctrine entirely into divine ideas so that the universals are just ideas in the mind of God. Um, at the end of the day, then, you have the whole formal 
Plotinian apparatus still being reproduced by Augustine, and it means nothing. It means nothing like what uh, a Plotinian or a Neoplatonist would have understood the doctrine to mean. So that formal similarity does not mean substantial agreement with uh, the original position on which you're drawing. Gerald Bray, I think, made that argument. What's the name of that little book, that purple and orange cover? Is it dealing with impassibility? I forget, but uh, he made the point that... that uh, uh, even if there is a taking over or take, uh, and no, I don't think anybody denies that. You look at Augustine's discussion of plundering the Egyptians. That's what that's all about. Yeah. He's in on Christian doctrine. Uh, Augustine talks about uh, what to use and what not to use right. from the pagan culture. What what to, in other words, he's rejecting both wholesale absorption and he's rejecting the shunning of. of whatever, by God's common grace, whatever wisdom and truth there may be in, in the surrounding pagan culture. So let's, so let's run this through, through a thought experiment. In what, way is the, in what way is the unmoved mover of, say, Thomas Aquinas in any way different than the unmoved mover of, uh, of someone like Plotinus or even Aristotle? Um, is there any real difference between what they even mean by unmoved mover? Uh, I would say there are there are deep and though there are formal similarities, there are also deep and significant differences in which one in which one speaks clearly as a Christian and the other clearly as a pagan. Most importantly, it's on the it's with respect to the issue of pure actuality. Um, both Augustine and Plotinus uh, think that God exists eternally alongside some uh, some type of some type of a plenum or or unformed matter, so that matter so that matter is eternal and God is eternally correlative to matter. Immediately, then there is some actuality uh, outside of God that is distinct from Him, over against which God must define and distinguish Himself. Therefore, He's not purely actual, um, so that He's not He so that God God must cannot be purely actual if He if He coexists eternally alongside something not identical with himself, because to whatever extent he differs from that thing, uh, he must lack some actuality. Therefore, the Christian, the Christian doctrine of pure actuality and, and of speaking of God as an unmoved mover uh, is, is in many ways uh, quite different than what you find in uh, what you find in Plotinus or Aristotle. Neither of those Greek thinkers could ever actually come up with a doctrine of creation ex nihilo uh, because there, isn't no, there is no such thing as ex nihilo because the matter upon which God tinkers is always eternally there. Um, so what I'm saying is a Christian doctrine of creation ra- radically uh, reconceives even what is meant uh, for God to be an unmoved mover. I might say, moreover, in addition to that, whereas the Greeks might have thought in teaching impassibility— uh, that that meant that God was removed and indifferent and uncaring about the world. Uh, what it means in Christian hands is that God is so purely actual in his affections, that is, in his love and his care and his concern for the world, that he could not possibly be moved to some further actuality of love. The love with which God will show to you, well, with which God will 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 bless your life in a year from now or five years from now or from all eternity is not a love that he's waiting to actualize in that moment. It's rather a love with which he is already identical and, and a love which is already purely actual. Um, so that 
an impassable God, interestingly, an impassable God who can't be moved to further acts of love is not less loving. He's infinitely more loving. He's not less concerned. Uh, he's infinitely more concerned. And he's not, he's not uh, somehow then indifferent. He's, in fact, intimately, as the creator of the very being of things, he's intimately acquainted with things. Thomas has a statement that God, that, that God is as deep in, that, that, God is that God is that which is innermost in the world. And he doesn't mean as a form of the world. He's, he's not a pantheist or a panentheist. Um, what he means is that as the cause of creaturely essay, act of being, God must be as deep in anything as its cause as anything itself is. Whatever you can say is, God is as deep as that uh, in anything. So that the intimate acquaintance, God's pure actuality, uh, as the, as the, only a pure act could be, the source, could be the source of creation ex nihilo. So as pure actuality, God is actually more intimately related to his creation than if he were a univocal causal agent. Uh, who has to? Who can only interact with his creatures, creatures via a mediating act? God, God doesn't create via a mediating act that stands between him and the cre- and the creation relating, but rather by the very act with which he is, uh, he bestows actuality upon creatures as created images of that actuality. Um, so I think in this sense. The Christian notion of impassibility is is not is not that God. I think Wayne Andy puts it this way in his book, "Does God Suffer?" Um, God's immutability and let us say his impassibility is not is not like that of the Rock of Gibraltar, uh, which is which is sort of cold, hard, and unmoving. Unmoving, and though the rain rain beats against it and the waves crash against it, uh, it it remains unmoved and indifferent, as it were, to all that all the vicissitudes of life around it. But rather the so the actuality of God is the the how do we put it? The impassibility and immutability of God is not due to the paucity of act in God, but rather it's due to the infinity of pure act in God. So that there, if God is immovable, uh, there are two ways to be immovable. You can be immovable because you're indifferent and cold and inert and 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 don't care what's going on around you, or you can be immovable because you are so purely actual uh, in in your caring and your concern for creation that you couldn't possibly be moved to any further actuality. So that the immo- so that the immobility is not the immobility of of static, lifeless, cold, removed indifference. Uh, it's the it's the immobility of so purely actual in your concern that you couldn't possibly be moved or caused to undergo some further actuality of concern, whether that uh, or love or affection toward your creation. Mm. Um, uh, I know that's I know that's a mouthful and that's a lot to think <laughs> about, but I think it's important to say against this hell this idea that's just a Hellenized doctrine. Exactly, uh, you know, stand up. We've been talking Hellenization uh, and fear of the Greeks. Uh, and on philosophy for theologians, which is another program that we've done in the past, we'd like to revitalize it. But uh, in the introduction, we use clips from this Monty Python skit where uh, they're calling a soccer game between all these famous philosophers. And there's one part where he says, now here come the Greeks. And then they come out and there's all the famous Greek philosophers. But then it, he says, and here come the Germans. So is there also a fear of the Germans uh, lurking, you know, Hegel in particular, lurking behind uh, this uh, there opposition is, to uh, the doctrine of divine impassibility. Well, I think I think in some ways, uh, maybe not so much among evangelicals and Calvinists who don't uphold this doctrine, 
but but among the more out and out passableists like Jürgen Moltmann or someone like Robert Jensen, mm-hmm. uh, it's not so much a fear of Hegel. In fact, that's part of the problem is they don't fear Hegel enough. Uh, they, <laughs> they use Hegel. They, yeah, in in a selective way. As soon yeah. as you call them Hegelian, they'll they'll run out all the ways in which they're not formally and actually Hegelians mm-hmm. and whatever. But to show the substantial influence of of Hegel's thought, um, see for them. A little, uh, maybe a little modest use of Hegelianism, of God who is becoming, of God who's undergoing change, of God who's actualizing for you know, passive potency in himself. Uh, this idea that God is becoming in his perfection seems to stave off the idea of those of those cold, lifeless medievals that God is just that God is just removed and indifferent in his pure actuality. But again, I say that's that is to fail to understand pure actuality. Pure actuality is pure actuality is not. Is not the lack of actuality; it's the over, it's the superabundance such that no more could be added. But the idea is, well, if God's going to be dynamic and He's going to be actual, uh, then it's going to have to be uh, through this through this sort of through this sort of um, prog- progression that He passes. So, mm. even when it comes to interpretation of Scripture, you'll find a lot of, especially Old Testament interpreters, jump on this. I was reading um, Gerhard von Rad's. Uh, interpretation of a classic uh, point of conflict, uh, Genesis uh, six, six and seven, in which God, which God talks about him being pained in his heart by, by the uh, wickedness of men, uh, and and uh, von Rod makes the point uh, that the Semitic, the Semitic thinkers, these Old Testament thinkers, obviously weren't weren't concerned to preserve God's absoluteness at the expense of his vitality. And I thought that right there sums up for me exactly the assumptions of a Hegelian way of thought. The assumption, the assumption is um, that if God is absolute and immovable, then he's cold and he's inert, like as if he were an, as if he were an immovable thing in creation itself, uh, immovable because of his lack of actuality. So, so von Rod says, they're not so concerned to, to uphold as that. They're, they're willing to forego some absoluteness in order to get the vitality of the biblical God who's dynamically involved with this people. And I thought... That that whole juxtaposition itself is wrong, and it's a, and it's a failure to understand exactly what pure actuality is claiming. In fact, a purely actual God, who who is impassable, is more caring and more concerned, and if we can put it this way, as the giver of being itself, more dynamically involved uh, with his creation than a God who is, as it were, progressing along with and entering into new states of affection one after the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's I think that's an important point. Um, so more of a fear of Hegel in, in the sense of like the fear of the Lord, so we obey him. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- again, I in think admiration. the problem the problem is the problem is not fearing Hegel enough. No, that's yeah. Um, like you you said before elsewhere, uh, that uh, Hegelianism has been imbibed, uh, and, and you know, dialectic. The concept the concept of dialectic is much broader than Hegel. He wasn't sure. the first to. Uh, introduced, I think, it was Fichte was was he the first? He might have been. Well, Fichte was the one who who uh, early came, came up with the thesis, antithesis, synthesis language, right. uh, interpreting Hegel. interpreting yeah. Hegel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think I think there's okay, a bit so of that, that mo- reversed. More of that, more of that sort of outside of evangelical circles. But you know, it's interesting. The people who go for that tend to be tend to be liberal and progressive Protestants, uh, not classical Roman Catholic and not classically Reformed. Uh, now, why why would conservative evangelical, what I might even call classically Reformed Christians, have trouble or or just not feel quite ill at ease with the notion that God is without passions? I think beside 
not really wrestling with what it means for God to be purely actual. Um, in in addition, in addition to that, I think there are some other other maybe more maybe more obvious explanations. One would be the loss of negative theology in general. Um, the via, the via negativa and the via remotionis are rarely done. Um, you can read you can read a, a large book by an evangelical Calvinist like Van Hooser's Remythologizing Theology, um, and it seems like the only thing that counts for theology is cataphatic theology and apophatic negative theology, which saying God is not like this or not like that is is really uh, is really not in vogue these days. That sounds mm-hmm. that sounds too that sounds too speculative, cold, removed, philosophical, whatever. Um, I think that I think that a loss of the via negativa, the via remotionis, and even what it means to properly uh, work through a via eminentiae, I think the loss of those ways of approaching theological predication mm. uh, have basically it's 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 not that people have taken up a position against those ways of speaking of God, it's that they're so unfamiliar with them that they sound wrong when you hear them. Well, when, well, when, when, when did that happen? I was going to say, when, when did that loss of... We're getting almost into that whole, when you read the Reformed Scholastics, you have the same kind of sense of foreignness when you read them. Uh, where, where did that happen? When does it happen and where and uh, why? Maybe? I would give a host of reasons, some of them less innocent than others. Uh, one of the reasons is that when... When Kant, in effect, declared classical metaphysics dead, we lost the formal apparatus by which we articulated ourselves negatively. And what I what we find is that Christians who should have been contending against Kant in order to preserve uh, the rightness of those classical metaphysical assumptions as rethought through Christian doctrines like creation ex nihilo, rather than contend for them, they said uh, – you're right. We won't talk about we won't talk about metaphysics. We won't use metaphysical terms anymore. But we're going to basically we're going to basically retreat from that way of speaking into a more cataphotic, uh, biblical way of speaking. Yeah, but ironically, uh, when we talk about the via negativa, and if we understand it correctly, with a healthy doctrine of revelation, sure. it is anti-speculative, because what you're comparing when you say God is not like this, not like this. You look to Scripture to see things in which God says, "You know, my thoughts are not your yeah, thoughts. Nothing, my ways well, are not your you ways." What you mean is it's not. It's not. Pure, what you mean is it's. It's not speculative in the sense that it's purely negative. We ground. We ground our denials upon no, I mean, affirmations. But I, I mean, rightly done. I think that when we say God is not like this, the reason you say He is not like this is because yeah. of what God has has said about Himself, right? Or either positively or negatively. But even that to move from the cataphatic, which we do on a basis of revelation, indeed, to to the apophatic, is itself, if I can put it in the in the more pristine and high rather than late medieval way, that that is a form of that is a form of contemplative and speculative theology. That's yeah, and, and that's, that's I think that's all right. Well, <laughs> yes, not everyone of course, does. Of course, with, it is. With John I mean, every, Edwards, I have no it, problem with speculating. Every, everybody, everybody, everybody about good even, and necessary we'll consequences too. Even, Everybody does speculative theology uh, in the sense in the sense that I mean, if we can think of it more broadly, when a pastor preaches a sermon and he contemplates, or if I can put it in that that word, speculates, that is, considers the implications, the good and necessary consequences of the positive text on the page before him, and then goes to his people and says, "Because of who God is, thou shalt not." 
and you make application to your people, uh, you are you are engaging on a pastoral level in a form of contemplative or speculative theology, not speculative in the sense of purely negative, as if found as if not founded on revelation. Itself. Yeah, removed from right. divorce. So from I think revelation. we I think we need to so there, be careful of that. We're saying law. things that in the, about which the God has not said. The, right, going um, beyond scripture, the, and this relates to what we said yeah. earlier before we began the recording. Uh, there's a tendency to resort to incomprehensible, divine incomprehensibility, or, or the mystery of, of God, and we we resort to that because we're mentally lazy. That that that's a problem. That that's so not, that so that the incomprehensibility of God is something that kicks in at the end of the theological process and predication rather than at the beginning. So that so that what what incomprehensibility is is what we say when we feel like we can't say anymore. Right. Uh, up to that point we've comprehended, but now at the point at which I think I don't understand, therefore God must be incomprehensible. It's like a get out of jail free card. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's ne- incomprehensibility is is uh, the immediate presupposition of all theological uh, predication at the very beginning of the process. Um, I think I think maybe I think maybe some of this also, and if I could if I could bring it a little closer to home, and I know this gets this this starts stepping on some toes. Um, I think You've done that before. I think the the hegemony of biblical theology, um, which is a which is a very cataphatic discipline, uh, tends to tends to scare people off from moving from biblical theology to a series of positive and negative dogmas, meaning biblical theology has, for many people, uh, obviated the need for doing systematic theology at all, uh, and most definitely the need for doing a kind of systematic theology in a negative mode, saying God is not this and God is not that. Unless, unless some of people course call the, that biblicism. Of course, unless of course critics. the Scripture itself says it. says it. Um, anyway, I think that's I think that's a concern. Meaning, the the goals and the aims of biblical theology are not identical to those of systematic theology. And to the extent that you collapse them, and usually uh, submitting, and usually allowing biblical theology to sort of decimate traditional categories, I think to that extent you're getting rid of the contemplative discipline by which you even arrived at apophatic dogmas to begin with. So that, it's just an observation. People now, is can, that, would, that, would that be related to the, the, the rise of biblical theology in its generic sense, not necessarily limited to the Vossian reform sense, is connected in some ways to, to the Kantian influence in the, on Christianity. Yes, uh, yeah, of course it is. And I think, think, I think in the Vossian reform Dobler. sense, we've, we have done a fair job resisting that. I mean, the very fact that Richard Muller's received such a positive reception, or even the translation of Herman Bobbing's Reform Dogmatics, tells me that the, the Reformed have not, uh, have not so thoroughly poisoned the well. And look at, and look at Voss himself. Voss himself uh, celebrates Bobbing and even, and even writes his own Reform Dogmatics in the same vein, which is not just another biblical theology. So I'm just throwing that out there as not inevitable that biblical theology kills uh, the contemplative discipline of apophatic dogma, but it well, it's going the other way many it times certainly too. tempts it certainly tempts people uh, not to take that next step. Yeah, we always need to understand biblical and systematic well, theology as uh, servants of one another. I think mutually yeah, regulative right. and mutually informing. But there have been many in church history that have flipped the 
you know, turn the tables and systematic theology has eaten up biblical theology. Yeah, that no, so that redemption the becomes a purely a purely metaphysical transformation. I agree, and, I, and yeah. that's that's a fair that's a fair concern. Uh, but in, to raise. in this in this instance, because the denial uh, or the denial of a, a specific ontological uh, framework or the assumption of a tacit framework, uh, I think, is is wreaking havoc. Uh, the Bible has an ontological framework. Now, it, it doesn't talk in that language, but it's there. Right. And it, we don't do any justice, uh, we don't do ourselves any service by uh, pretending it's not there. Uh, how many times have you read, even by uh, theologians who you might appreciate in many regards, who say the Bible has no epistemology or it has no ontology? And I'm thinking, huh? But and th- I guess this is the first of all that's that's absurd. But the the second thing is I would say to the person who says <laughs> like that, do you have an epistemology? Do you have an ontology? I don't because, know. <laughs> because, well, that that would be a good honest answer. But I think often when someone says, "Well, I don't like this talk about pure actuality," the only reason that you might not like that is because you do have an ontology that doesn't allow it. Because if your ontology didn't, if your if your basic understanding of being and of God's being in particular didn't didn't forbid it, then why would you be opposed to me saying it? Meaning that opposition stems from something. Uh, mm. That opposition to the notions of simplicity or pure actuality or even immutability in the and, and especially impassibility, uh, that opposition stems from some assumption about being. There is some way that God is ontologically. I use the is advisedly there. Uh, there is some way that you think that God is uh, that doesn't comply with this, and I would say for those that for those that don't want to articulate themselves ontologically, we have to press them to do so, so that so that their ontological commitments can come to light, and then we can ask whether those are agreeable to a whole host of other biblical dogma. Can you speak um, about this in further detail? You, you've written here on, on some notes about the loss of analogical predication. Uh, what do you mean by not, that? And how how might that relate? I'll say there are two problems with respect to analogical predication. First, it's loss uh, in general, meaning uh, meaning I think most people when they when they come to scripture and they see scripture say scri- scripture say something literally, the assumption is that that can't be analogical. That literal language is literal language is literal language, and nothing ever said literally is analogical. That's a I I would say that that is a though in the reform world those who many people know better we still default to that assumption i would say the second problem with uh the second problem with uh analogical predication is that many people who insist upon it don't carefully parse it out and they end up they end up overstating the case in a way that makes the doctrine of impassibility more offensive than it needs to be um with respect with respect to the first um I think there's this quite there's just this assumption in the minds of many people when they say when they read texts like you know like Genesis six six or whatever um, that that when we say that that's analogical what we mean is that that doesn't indicate anything that that doesn't in any way signify some reality or that whatever is being said there is just a kind of it's just a kind of made up myth to keep us Christians happy now what we mean by what we mean by analogical um, is that. That the that when when something is ascribed to God, let's say passions, so we can be on our topic, uh, when passions are ascribed to God analogically, it's precisely their function as passions that is their undergoing or their bringing about of of effective changes uh, in God. When we de- when we deny that and say that that's being predicated analogically, uh, the the response is, 
how can that how can that be analogical because it seemed because it seems so literal when you say when you say God is love are we saying that God is love analogically um, you know I I think of um, I think of a statement uh, from even from a, a noted Reformed theologian uh, in this connection John Frame uh, in which Frame Frame says that uh, you know some things some things that we say of God uh, we say literally and then other things are said analogically. So to say things literally, we need to say them we need to say them univocally. Um, here here's his here's his quote. This is Frame from Doctrine of God. God is as clearly revealed to us and as clearly known to us as any created thing. And he says on the next page. We need not be afraid of saying that some of our language about God is univocal or literal. God has given us language that literally applies to him. Close, close quote. Um, I, would, I would suggest that I'm, I'm sympathetic to his concern, but I think there's a deep confusion in it. Um, literal is not opposed to analogical. Rather, what we need to do is we need to make distinctions within analogical predication itself between what I might call literal and metaphorical or I think even better and more careful, proper and improper. So that when we ascribe passions to God, some passions are ascri- some passions are ascribed to God properly, but not as passions, meaning it's not intrinsic to it's not intrinsic that love and joy be a passion. They're only passions in creatures because creatures only experience love and joy by a process of undergoing. Uh if or suffering or when I say suffering, usually the idea is uh of submitting or being affected by something outside yourself. So that, so that, so the creatures come to love and they come to joy and they come to wrath, uh, through, through a process in which, in which those affections in them are caused, uh, in which they are made to undergo those affections. So they move from emotional state A to emotional state B to C back to A, whatever. Um, it's not it's not of the nature of joy and it's not of the nature of love as such to be passions but they're only passions in humans because humans uh, are composite creatures that are not identical with their acts of joy and with their acts of love therefore if they're not if in essence identical with their joy and with their love then they must be made to undergo uh, their actuality of love and joy therefore love and joy love and joy are passions and hatred the same thing when we when we ascribe these to God, we ascribe them analogically, meaning we remove we remove from them their universal instantiation as passions, and we say that the reality that underlies the affection that underlies and informs that passion is not itself a passion, but is a pure perfection, a purely actual perfection of God's own essence. So that God isn't joy. God's joy is not an emotional state in which He happens to find Himself. More importantly, God's joy is God Himself. God's love is not is not an emotive state in which God finds himself. Rather, God's love is simply God himself. Now, when God speaks to us in Scripture, and when he manifests his love to us through his temporal successive effects, it is manifest to us under the form of passions uh, because... Uh, progressive a progressive unfolding or instantiation of love and our effects usually corresponds to a passion in the agent we're we're doing a via remotiana here we're removing we're removing its nature as passion and saying that properly the affection itself is not properly a passion but it's only a passion uh in in creaturely instances now that's what we mean by when we say so analogically we say god is love 
We're saying it literally. What we're do- the, the analogy is that we're removing uh, from the conception of love uh, all of its uniquely creaturely uh, qualities that aren't of the essence of love qua love. Um, okay. Now, that's, in that sense, something is said both literally and analogically. Um, and I might just in- interject this because I think this is where a lot of impassibilists have not helped the doctrine. Um, when we say that God is love— we are not predicating that anthropopathically. Um, many people think that all that that all uh, analogy uh, is is itself an anthropomorphism. I would say only the things improperly uh, and analogically ascribed to God or metaphorically ascribed to God are anthropomorphisms or anthropopathisms. So that something can be an analogical predication that is not univocal to the creature, and yet at the same time is is not itself an anthropopathism or anthropomorphism. So I'll make my I'll make this point uh, maybe clear. Let's talk about pain. Um, does God does God experience pain? Uh, when we read in Genesis six uh, verse six, we read that the Lord was sorry He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. Um, that we would say is also analogical. Um, but it's not analogical in the proper sense. It's, analog- it's, it's not properly ascribed to God. It's improperly ascribed to God, and it is an anthropopathism. Uh, this is ascribing to God something that is, that is, uniquely, that is uniquely human, grief, uh, being grieved to the heart, uh, so that God doesn't have pain inflicted upon him. But when he represents himself to us as having pain inflicted upon his heart, we're saying that, you know, people say, well, does he not really have pain inflicted upon his heart? No, he really he really isn't having pain inflicted upon his heart. Well, then what sense does this even make? Is God just making things up? And what, what is this even trying to tell us then uh, by God revealing this uh, to Moses? Uh, what God is telling us is that the, that the actions that he is undertaking and about to undertake on, man, on man's behalf are like the actions that man undertakes when he is unjustly uh, grieved and made to experience pain and grieved in his heart. So what he's doing is he's explaining the actions that follow, which are the destruction of the world and the flood. He's explaining them to us in terms that we might understand uh, with respect to human actions. Now, this is this is almost the universal assumption of what this text must mean in in the medieval tradition and in the reformed tradition, uh, not not just in not not just in the 16th or 17th century, uh, but well, just to provide know, an example, another present. related example when we talk about anthropomorphisms might help some people to follow that that are having difficulty getting their head around this particular anthropopathism. But when when the scriptures say that God stretched out His hand. Again, going back to the Westminster Standards, people don't often have problems yeah. thinking that God doesn't have a body, but the Bible just said he stretched out his hand. That's, a, that's, that's an improper, and right. when I say improper, I don't mean not, not, not good right. or, or shouldn't be done. I just mean it's not, it's not, prop, it's not proper to God uh, that he have a hand because he's incorporeal. But the scriptures are telling us something about what he is doing and describing it to us in terms that are familiar to us hence anthropomorphism in the form of what man does and all and all and all human passions that that of them that of the of which it is the nature of that human passion to be to undergo or to be made to change uh, for all of those passions they are like bodily parts ascribed to god uh metaf- metaphorically imp- uh, improperly and and uh 
you know, what we say, not non, non-literally. But does that mean that that's all analogy is so that every instance, every instance, I'll put it this way, every instance of, uh, of an anthropomorphism, which God is said to have the form of a human body, every single one of those is predicated improperly. Every single form of a passion in which it is the nature of that passion uh, to be to undergo change is predicated of God and uh, is predicated of God improperly. Every passion ascribed to God, which which of which it is not of its essence to undergo or be acted upon, it's it is of the na- it is of the nature of pain to be to for one thing to act upon another. Therefore, God can't be pained. It is not of the nature of love to be stirred up and moved to love, though we always experience it that way as humans. It's not of the nature of love qua love uh, to be exhibited in that way. So that love can be predicated not as not as an anthropopathism, but properly, and Frame wants to say literally to God, but still analogically because it is not love in any way, because it is not love as we know it, it's removed. Uh, it's love as understood removing all the particularly passable features of love. Um, I mean, the popular assumption today is love involves vulnerability, love involves suffering. How can you love without suffering? To me, that that whole way of thinking says, this is how creatures are. God must be that way too, or he can't be what the Bible says he is. I think that that's a, that's a s- sort of simple and uncareful way of maybe going about it. Um, Khalil Gibran-esque uh, <laughs> type of metaphysics. <laughs> but I, I should say that this is, again, impassibilists who insist that every ascription of affection in the Bible to God is an instance of anthropopathism – I think have not carefully parsed out what analogical predication is doing between proper and improper, literal and non-literal, literal and metaphorical predication. Uh, within within analogical predication itself, there is a kind of subtle variety that we need to hold in place. Otherwise, you you know, otherwise, I think, like I said, I think we cause unnecessary offense. I'm thinking, I'm thinking here of um, something I read years ago in Don Carson's book. Um, uh, the difficult doctrine of the love of God, in which he talks about impassibility. I can remember reading this as a young, eager, reformed theologian, and this guy's quite quite reformed in his commitments. And I come to a section on impassibility, and he doesn't have anything nice to say about it. This is this is. Um, see if I can find the quote from uh, from Carson. It is no answer to espouse a form of impassibility that denies that God has no emotional life or insists that all the biblical evidence contrary to uh, to the contrary is nothing more than anthropopathism. First of all, I'm not sure exactly what he means by emotion, God has an emotional life. Um, if he means if he means a form of impassibility that that denies to God uh, love, care, concern, intimate concern with creation, then it's only Greek pagans who've ever espoused that. I don't know of I don't know of a Christian doctrine of impassibility that holds that. He seems he seems to ensue, he seems to assume that there is some Christian doctrine that believes this. Um, anyway, he says the price is too heavy. You may then rest in God's sovereignty, but you can no longer rejoice in His love. You may rejoice only in a linguistic expression that is an accommodation of some reality of which we cannot conceive, couched in the anthropopathism of love. Give me a break. Paul did not pray that his readers might be able to grasp the height and depth and length and breadth of an anthropopathism and know this anthropopathism that surpasses knowledge. Uh, two things. Carson Carson is uh, – I'm not sure what Carson – maybe three. I'm not sure what Carson means by God's emotional life. Uh, that to me 
that to be needs to be very carefully qualified as this is not a life that is lived out through successive uh, states of emotion. Let's say that. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, I'm not at all sure who these Christians are who don't believe uh, that God is full of love and compassion and care and concern. Mm-hmm. Who? What? Christian, all the while espousing impassibility. What, all the, yeah. what Christian impassibilist ever denied uh, that God uh, intimately loves and cares for and provides for his for uh, his people. What we're denying is that God experiences that love as a passion. Um, what I think Carson hasn't done probably is separate the notion of a pure affection like love or joy from the notion of a passion, which is which actually means uh, to undergo or to be moved from without or even to suffer. Carson has indicated his, his shyness about ontology anyways, so I'm not in other areas, so I'm not. I'm not Back to surprised. our comments earlier, though, he certainly has an ontology. He does, but but he never wants. It, but he's t- not telling. Typically, when he's dealing with, uh, uh, I don't know, the nature, two natures of Christ, that kind of thing, there there tends to be a reticence, uh, typical uh, in, of some circles, to to state uh, an ontology or metaphysic explicitly. In respect to uh, a, ta- a text like God being grieved to his heart uh, in, in Genesis 6-6, um, the, older tr- the older commentating tradition, uh, medieval Catholic, Reformed Protestant, and even, and even Wesleyan, uh, would have said that that is with respect that that we're saying that of God with respect to the, the results that the effects that ensue. Um, Whereas now it's almost the norm to say that somehow, some way, God is God is uh, impassable, or God is passable uh, and somehow impassable at the same time. So NICOT commentator Victor Hamilton says verses like this remind us that the God of the Old Testament is not beyond the capability of feeling pain, chagrin, and remorse, uh, but on, but uh, but to call him the impassable absolute is only part of the part of the truth. I'm not sure what the other part is, but I get the feeling that whatever the other part is, it's going to pretty much undermine the impassable absoluteness of God. So this is what uh, he goes on to say. The fact that the Old Testament affirms that God does repent, even even over uh, feat accompli, uh, things already accomplished, forces us to make room in our theology for the concepts of both the unchangeability uh, and of his changeability. Uh, the unchangeability of God and of his changeability. And the question then is, what? so what is the solution being put forward by certain evangelical Calvinists? The, the solution being put forward is um, that God is impassable in the sense that he can't he can't be moved involuntarily by creatures outside of himself, um, but he's passable uh, to the extent that he voluntarily chooses uh, to either allow those creatures to move him to some new emotive state or chooses simply to change his emotive states themselves. Um, again, I think this confuses the action of God with its effects, and it coordinates the, the progression of effects with, uh, with the act by which they're brought about. But I think even, but I think even more importantly, it gets, it gets at the heart of a very deep problem with the way in which impassibility is being understood. Impassibility is a doctrine rooted not so much in God's will or control, but it's a doctrine rooted in God's being as immutable and unchangeable. As soon as we turn it into, as soon as we turn the language of passions into statements about about God's emotive stability and self-control, 
Um, as soon, and that begins to happen with the Enlightenment period in which faculty psychology co-ops the language of passions and begins to treat passions as, like I said earlier, um, irrational animal spirits. Thomas Aquinas, though he would have connected passions with, with corporal existence, would never have said that they are thereby uh, somehow irrational or disconnected from reason. So that, so that the thought is, well, what is really meant by impassibility uh, is that God that God is not out of control with respect to the pain or suffering he feels or to the, to the love or joy that he feels, but rather that God himself, you know, so that God himself is actually in control of himself. Now, I would say that that is not actually a doctrine of impassibility any longer. It's actually a doctrine, I think a wrongheaded one, of God as sovereign over his own nature, which is absurd. Extreme but, voluntarism. But the extreme voluntarism in which God... Oh, of course, yeah, definitely simplicity in its traditional sense is gone. But so, so what do you have left? If you're a Calvinist evangelical who holds that God uh, is passable and that God does undergo emotive changes, um, what can you what can you say to rescue the doctrine? Well, that's easy. If it's simply a doctrine about whether God's in control of His passions, all you have to do is say that God decrees the passions He has, and He do, He's not ever caught unawares by a creature that does violence to Him without His first decreeing and willing it um, to be. So that what God does is God wills passability for Himself. Um, and if God wills passability for Himself, then it's okay. The only kind of passability that's bad. Is the, is the passibility over which he has no control. So therefore, what we can say is, well, I'm an impassibilist, and I'm a passibilist at the same time. I'm an impassibilist with respect to man's voluntarism, and I'm a passibilist with respect to God's own self-voluntarism, in which he chooses himself to be passable and subject to the actions and even pain that men might inflict upon Isn't him. Isn't this all the result of making the character of man the standard? Uh, I... Well, yes, anthropocentrism. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it seems like in some, in many ways, this I, is it's think, making what we experience the the, the standard by which to to uh, think about God. Now, there's a certain sense which we can't get around that. I think, but I think the reason we do that is because we've lost an older way of even right, talking what, about these things, and so we're so we're left to we're left to uh, anthropomorphize, or, or so to speak, mm-hmm. in this way. But I, I guess what I would want to say in that connection is, and this might sound radical, but ontologically speaking, God is not self-controlled. God, God, who is impassable in his nature, cannot decide to open up his nature to some passability. Impassibility is not, is not merely the result of something he wills for himself. God isn't impassable because he willed himself to be impassable so that if he now wills himself to be passable, that's okay. Yeah. God is, God is not, God, when God wills himself, he wills himself with the will of complacency, not the will of efficacy. This assumption that God wills for himself uh, to, be, to be subject to successive emotive states assumes that God that God's will of himself is actually a will of efficacy not of complacency a complacency That's being basically back to the bardians again it, yeah, yeah exactly but this is but this is but this is taken hold of people who are radically mm-hmm. anti-bardian right. you'll find this in J.I. Packer you'll find this uh, well Kevin Van Huser isn't anti-bardian he loves Bart but uh, you'll find this in Kevin Van Huser you'll find this in J.I. Packer um, you'll find this in in other ordinarily anti-Bardian reformed Christians who who I think have mistake who have been brought in by this idea that passion that that pa- the only reason passions are bad for God or one of the main reasons is because they indicate that God is subject to the whims of creatures and therefore if we can sort of do an end run around that objection then it's okay if God is passable mm-hmm. um, you find this you find this 
hints of it in uh, Robert Dabney. Uh, you definitely find it in, in Packer, and you find it in a host of Calvinist blogging today on the doctrine of impassibility. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Council of Chalcedon and Chalcedonian Christology. Um, how does impassibility come to light uh, or shed light upon what's going on in the God-man? That's often yeah. pointed to as uh, evidence against impassibility. And especially in light of the host of patristic statements mm-hmm. that are really theopaschian in nature, in which a statement, so I think it's Melito of Sardis who says, you know, in the cross, the impassible suffers. Um, first, I might throw out a book title. God in, dies. In, we hear that sometimes. That kind of I'm going to throw out a book title if you want to get into the real nitty gritty and the patristics uh, is Paul Gavriluk's uh, volume from, I don't even know if I'm saying his name. It's one of those Eastern names and it trips me up. But from Oxford University Press, um, I think it's called something like um, The Suffering of the Impassable God or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, that that volume uh, is excellent. What can we say uh, in this connection that the impassable suffers? Does the impassable suffer? The answer, the answer uh, to that is yes, but not as the impassable. Um, the impassable suffers, but not as the impassable. The, the fathers would even say that in the death of Christ, a member of the Trinity... Personal subject. uh, The personal sub undergoes a suffering, but in terms of Chalcedon, of course, it's it's entirely according to his human nature. Um, If you have a proper communicatio idiomatum that doesn't allow one nature in any way to modify uh, another nature in Christ, then what Christ does on the cross, he does um, he does as a divine person, but not according to a divine nature but according to his human nature uh exclusively according to his human nature and a little and we, and we could we can't think of a little bit of the of the of the passion of Christ as spilling over into his divinity and thereby sort of uh either either um humanizing his divinity or divinizing his suffering but that that's the uh, popular approach now, isn't it? Well, because then it gets God down here in our experience, right. and it makes him kind of you know, Moltmann. it makes him empathetic. Makes him, and all makes that. him Moltmann? No, no, no. Make doesn't well doesn't. Make, <laughs> yeah, no, well, yeah. Jürgen Moltmann would be the be the the biggest voice uh, making this argument. But so the question is, uh, does the impassable suffer? The answer is yes, but not according to his impassibility. Um, and then and then the in, question in his human nature in his human nature. But right. I, I think there's this tendency uh, to not keep the things done in his human nature clearly distinguished from what's done in his divine nature. So people right. people will, I think, confuse the issue by saying, yes, but it's not a nature that suffers on the cross, it's a person. Yeah, to that's which, what the communicatio idiomatum is all to, about. But to which I want to say, yes, but let's be careful not to put too much daylight, in fact, let's be careful not to put any daylight between Christ and either his divine or his human nature. There is no action that is unique to the, that is, that uniquely occurs in the person that is, doesn't occur according to a nature. Anything, anything that happens to a person always happens in that person's union with a nature and according to one nature of the other. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's helpful to say (laughs) a nature didn't suffer. No, but a nature as a nature doesn't subsist outside of a supposit either. And so, uh, what are you saying to me? What are you, what are you saying that a, that a nature didn't sort of detach itself from the person of Jesus Christ and go and suffer? Well, that's, that's or that a person suffered without a nature. Nope. Well, see, here's the implications. <laughs> the implications is the implications are that we can speak of the suffering of a person and not get 
not get overly concerned and precise to demarcate exactly the nature in which that takes place, even though the orthodox intuition says, oh, well, of course it was in the human nature. Um, what happens, though? What, what's happening with Christ's divine nature at the moment in which he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Exactly. The very, the, dev- the very person who suffers, in the moment that he suffers, is temporally, eternally, simply, omnipotently upholding the world by the word of his power and dwelling in mutual and perfect love with the Father and with the Spirit. The, and, it's not, and it's not just a divine nature that's up communing with the Father and the Spirit. The it is the person. So the person, I think we get this idea that Jesus, because he's one person in two natures, has to sort of toggle, as it were, between yeah. one nature and the right. other. Sometimes he's acting in, according to his human nature, most especially at the cross, and sometimes he's acting in his, in his divine nature, like maybe when he raises the dead. What I want to say is, that Jesus is always acting at the same moment perfectly according to both natures in one person. So that, again, Jeff's answer is exactly right. So it's a mono and diethelitism debate. Well, you almost, you, right. you almost and have And we the, must say diethelitism. The we person becomes the third thing beside the two natures. You objectify. You objectify. Sealed. You basically. You basically make a supposit, a, a subject, Jesus, uh, the person, who is who is sort of conveniently detached with a little daylight between them to either nature. Uh, f- subjects are always something. A nature is what makes Jesus something. When I say makes, I'm saying in the broadly conceptual sense, makes Jesus something. To speak about the person of Christ as detached from either nature and say a person suffered, not a nature, I think. I think unnecessarily clouds uh, the real issue that the son is always acting according to both natures, and the way he acts according to those natures is unique and exclusive to that nature. What happens at the cross could only have happened, in terms of the suffering, could only have happened to a man. Uh, And the one who suffers upholding the world by the word of his power could only be true of God, and yet they're true of Jesus, not not. You know, one is true now and one is true later, but they're true of Jesus and the same person at one and the same moment. Yeah. As, um, I, as I mentioned, mystery the, of the incarnation. So he's imp- he's impassable yeah. according to his divinity he's at the very moment in which he's, he's passable, passable according to his right. humanity, and it's one he, person who is passable in both senses. Jeff, oh, well, I was just or impassable and passable in both senses. Thank you for clarifying. Commu- communicatio <laughs> idiomatum. <laughs> Thanks. I I had mentioned before we began recording that uh, we have an episode of East of Eden, which will see the light of day at some point later this summer, uh, where we deal with one of Edward Sherman's called Christ's Agony. And the amazing thing is uh, that he starts off the sermon dealing with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and his struggle with, with going to the cross. He starts off with an affirmation of Chalcedonian Christology, and you're thinking, okay, if I were preaching today, I would never do that. Well, I would, but, you know, good preachers, they're probably thinking they would never do that. It's amazing. He says, well, Christ is uh, suffering uh, as to his human nature, not his divine nature. Uh, so it's getting at what we've did, but it's one person with two natures. Uh, very interesting that he would start off a sermon that's really uh, going to stress the human element, although he will argue that the divine nature upholds the human nature going through yes. this horrendous ordeal. 
Well, the div- the well because the divine nature of Christ is the very cause is the very cause of being of his right, of exactly. his human nature, and everything that is true of the creator creature relation in general is true of the distinction between the two natures of Christ. Christ's humanity relates to his deity as creature as creature to creator, and all the and all the distinctions and even the analogy that goes on between between creator and creature. Uh, in terms of created similitude, uh, takes place uh, in Christ in Christ Himself. So I think this is this is maybe back to Camden's question: Does God die? Um, let me let me say uh, I would qualify that immediately first. Um, right. A person, pers- a divine person who is Himself God, dies according to a human nature. Uh, the Father and the Spirit do not die according or suffer according to any nature whatsoever. Um, so this question, does God suffer, I think uh, I think there is a way in which you could theologically give a positive answer to that question. Mm-hmm. You could say the impassable suffers, but you're doing it, you, you don't want to do it in a bumper sticker sloganized way. You really <laughs> want to do it within a robust framework God of, died, yeah, that, of Chalcedonian and Nicene uh, Constantinopolitan thought. You, you actually may have you, you may have <laughs> that touched won't fit upon on a bumper sticker, yeah. James. You may, you may have <laughs> touched bumper sticker. No, I think you touched upon w- one of the sources of the whole problem is our desire to not have to exercise mental energy in thinking about the Christian faith. There's an attested assumption out there that if it's not simple, uh, then it can't be true. It's easy to say uh, God suffers with and for me uh, and, and redeems my suffering by participating in it along with me. They, and, act, and because of this notion that love, that love is, uh, is defined by sympathy, getting in the other man's shoes, so to speak, uh, by taking his pain into yourself, because that's the definition of love, then God is thought to be more loving uh, the closer he gets to our desperate condition and maybe even experiences a bit of it. I would say the exact opposite is true. The more God is absolutely removed from our suffering by his pure actuality, the more the more he is loving, and, and as creator causing our very active existence, the more he is loving and concerned and caring about us. Uh, there's a great, if I can put it this way, there's, there's a form of love and care and concern that is even superior and infinitely better than sympathy itself. Uh, which is which is God's care for us as Creator? Does that mean having uh, one who is who is divine and sympathetic with us is to no benefit? No, it's a great encouragement according to Hebrews chapter four that Christ is, that Christ uh, sympathizes with us because He suffered and was tempted in a nature like ours. So yes, there are particular advantages to that, but it doesn't it doesn't mean that God is that God is thereby enabled to be more loving uh, in that way than He is in His pure act of love from all eternity. Now, um, just to to wrap things up, um, we've been spending an, a lot of time on a defensive in a defensive posture, uh, responding to common objections in Protestantism, evangelicalism. Uh, what is lost if we give up impassibility? Just uh, just to wrap it all up, why is it so important, and what do we give up if we reject it? Yeah, I think aside from the obvious that you give up immutability, you give up simplicity, you give up absoluteness. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to all those, I think you, I think we actually give up the the profundity and the superabundance of God's love and care and compassion by making God by making God passable. We actually reduce 
his love. We actually truncate because what we say is that there's a, fur- that there's a further actual instantiation of love, care, and concern which God is yet to enter. Um, so that the love with which he'll love you in 20 years from now is not yet actually uh, in, he's not yet, not yet actually in that emotive state. So he's waiting to actualize that in himself as a passable God. What we lose is we actually lose the fullness of the love. We think we make him more loving by drawing him nearer. And by, by transgressing his transcendence, we actually lose the intimacy of his imminence. Uh, so that his eminence is founded on his transcendence. The reason that God can be uh, innermost in things, in that older language, is because he is not part of things. Because he's the because he's not a univocal cause. If he were a univocal cause, he would have his actions toward things would have to be would have to be mediated uh, between himself and the subject. But as the immediate cause of our being. None, none could be more concerned and caring about us than than God. If we make him passable, we lose that. You end up losing the very thing we're attempting to promote. And I might uh, say in this connection, uh, Thomas Wayne Andy makes this argument splendidly in his book, mm-hmm. Does God Suffer? Uh, and again, in his article uh, in, the, uh, in the Keating and White uh, volume. Yeah. Well, James, thanks so much for stopping by. This has been a fantastic and interesting discussion. Uh, I appreciate it, the going into depth. Uh, and uh, I think this is going to be an excellent companion to the episode we did a year ago. Okay. Hopefully we'll get a good response. We we've, we've still get good responses from the one on simplicity. Yeah. So uh, I hope this is a lasting one. And uh, the people's passions are stoked as they listen, maybe. I don't know. We could be passionate because we're creatures. We <laughs> should right. be passionate. I do, uh, of course, want to mention um, uh, you can find James uh, several other episodes. He's also been a panelist and a regular reviewer on uh, many of our episodes at reformedforum.com. Org. Uh, you can also uh, find Jeff at calvary-amwell.org. It's the church website, as well as feedingonchrist.com. He blogs there. And, uh, of course, you can visit us at reformedforum.org. And please, if you're able, I would encourage you to visit us on our donate page. There's a, a link at the top called Give, and at the bottom of our episode pages, there's also a donate button. Things uh, obviously get, maybe not so obviously to many people, but things get slow in the summertime, but we still... Uh, have expenses, and uh, we're moving Command Central to Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, so that involves a lot of expense, too, to, to pack up the gear, to move it. Uh, we're not going to have a studio environment, so uh, we're going to have to buy some new things uh, just to be able to uh, operate out of the place I'm living. So uh, if you uh, find it in your heart, if you're able, and uh, if you desire uh, to do so, please visit us on our, our donate page, reformedforum.org slash donate to help us to do what we love doing, and that's uh, talking about theology and promoting that uh, to a wider audience. Uh, You can contact us at mail at reformedforum.org or tweet us at reformedforum. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ Center.